Part Seven of the Island of Doctor Moreau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen: A Catastrophe. Scarcely six weeks passed before I had lost every feeling but dislike and abhorrence for this infamous experiment of Moreau's. My one idea was to get away from these horrible caricatures of my maker's image back to the sweet and wholesome intercourse of men. My fellow-creatures, from whom I was thus separated, began to assume idyllic virtue and beauty in my memory. My first friendship with Montgomery did not increase. His long separation from humanity, his secret vice of drunkenness, his evident sympathy with the beast-people tainted him to me. Several times I let him go alone among them. I avoided intercourse with them in every possible way. I spent an increasing proportion of my time upon the beach, looking for some liberating sail that never appeared, until one day there fell upon us an appalling disaster, which put an altogether different aspect upon my strange surroundings. It was about seven or eight weeks after my landing, rather more, I think, though I had not troubled to keep account of the time, when this catastrophe occurred. It happened in the early morning, I should think about six. I had risen and breakfasted early, having been aroused by the noise of three beast-men carrying wood into the enclosure. After breakfast I went to the open gateway of the enclosure, and stood there smoking a cigarette and enjoying the freshness of the early morning. Moreau presently came round the corner of the enclosure and greeted me. He passed by me, and I heard him behind me unlock and enter his laboratory. So indurated was I at that time to the abomination of the place, that I heard, without a touch of emotion, the puma victim begin another day of torture. It met its persecutor with a shriek, almost exactly like that of an angry virago. Then, suddenly, something happened. I do not know what to this day. I heard a short, sharp cry behind me, a fall, and turning, saw an awful face rushing upon me, not human, not animal, but hellish, brown, seamed with red-branching scars, red drops starting out upon it, and lidless eyes ablaze. I threw up my arm to defend myself from the blow that flung me headlong with a broken forearm, and the great monster, swathed in lint and with red-stained bandages fluttering about it, leaped over me and passed. I rolled over and over down the beach, tried to sit up, and collapsed upon my broken arm. Then Moreau appeared, his massive white face all the more terrible for the blood that trickled from his forehead. He carried a revolver in one hand. He scarcely glanced at me, but rushed off at once, in pursuit of the puma. I tried the other arm, and sat up. The muffled figure in front ran in great striding leaps along the beach, and Moreau followed her. She turned her head and saw him, then, doubling abruptly, made for the bushes. She gained upon him at every stride. I saw her plunge into them, and Moreau, running slantingly to intercept her, fired and missed as she disappeared. Then he too vanished in the green confusion. I stared after them, and then the pain in my arm flamed up, and with a groan I staggered to my feet. Montgomery appeared in the doorway, dressed, and with his revolver in his hand. "'Great God, Prendick!' he said, not noticing that I was hurt. 
That brute's loose. Tore the fetter out of the wall. Have you seen them? Then sharply, seeing I gripped my arm, What's the matter? I was standing in the doorway, said I. He came forward and took my arm. Blood on the sleeve, said he, and rolled back the flannel. He pocketed his weapon, felt my arm about painfully, and led me inside. Your arm is broken, he said, and then, tell me exactly how it happened, what happened. I told him what I had seen, told him in broken sentences, with gasps of pain between them, and very dexterously and swiftly he bound my arm meanwhile. He slung it from my shoulder, stood back, and looked at me. "'You'll do,' he said. "'And now?' He thought. Then he went out and locked the gates of the enclosure. He was absent some time. I was chiefly concerned about my arm. The incident seemed merely one more of many horrible things. I sat down in the deck-chair, and I must admit swore heartily at the island. The first dull feeling of injury in my arm had already given way to a burning pain when Montgomery reappeared. His face was rather pale, and he showed more of his lower gums than ever. "'I can neither see nor hear anything of them,' he said. "'I've been thinking he may want my help.' He stared at me with his expressionless eyes. "'That was a strong brute,' he said. "'It simply wrenched its fetter out of the wall.' He went to the window, then to the door, and there turned to me. "'I shall go after them,' he said. "'There's another revolver I can leave with you. To tell you the truth, I feel anxious somehow.' He obtained the weapon and put it ready to my hand on the table, then went out, leaving a restless contagion in the air. I did not sit long after he left, but took the revolver in hand and went to the doorway. The morning was as still as death. Not a whisper of wind was stirring. The sea was like polished glass, the sky empty, the beach desolate. In my half-excited, half-feverish state, this stillness of things oppressed me. I tried to whistle, and the tune died away. I swore again, the second time that morning. Then I went to the corner of the enclosure and stared inland at the green bush that had swallowed up Moreau and Montgomery. When would they return, and how? Then, far away up the beach, a little grey beast-man appeared, ran down to the water's edge, and began splashing about. I strolled back to the doorway, then to the corner again, and so began pacing to and fro like a sentinel upon duty. Once I was arrested by the distant voice of Montgomery bawling, my arm became less painful, but very hot. I got feverish and thirsty. My shadow grew shorter. I watched to the distant figure until it went away again. Would Moreau and Montgomery never return? Three seabirds began fighting for some stranded treasure. Then, from far away, behind the enclosure, I heard a pistol-shot. A long silence, and then came another. Then a yelling cry nearer and another dismal gap of silence. My unfortunate imagination set to work to torment me. Then, suddenly, a shot close by. I went to the corner, startled, and saw Montgomery, his face scarlet, his hair disordered, and the knee of his trousers torn. 
His face expressed profound consternation. Behind him slouched the beast-man, Emling, and round Emling's jaws were some queer dark stains. "'Has he come?' said Montgomery. "'Moreau?' said I. "'No.' "'My God!' The man was panting, almost sobbing. "'Go back in!' he said, taking my arm. "'They're mad! They're all rushing about mad! What can have happened? I don't know. I'll tell you when my breath comes. Where's some brandy?' Montgomery limped before me into the room and sat down in the deck-chair. Emling flung himself down just outside the doorway and began panting like a dog. I got Montgomery some brandy and water. He sat staring in front of him at nothing, recovering his breath. After some minutes he began to tell me what had happened. He had followed their track for some way. It was plain enough at first, on account of the crushed and broken bushes, white rags torn from the puma's bandages, and occasional smears of blood on the leaves of the shrubs and undergrowth. He lost the track, however, on the stony ground beyond the stream where I had seen the beast-man drinking, and went wandering aimlessly westward, shouting Moreau's name. Then Emling had come to him carrying a little hatchet. Emling had seen nothing of the puma affair, had been felling wood, and heard him calling. They went on shouting together. Two beast-men came crouching and peering at them through the undergrowth, with gestures and a furtive carriage that alarmed Montgomery by their strangeness. He hailed them, and they fled guiltily. He stopped shooting after that, and, after wandering some time farther, in an undecided way, determined to visit the huts. He found the ravine deserted. Growing more alarmed every minute, he began to retrace his steps. Then it was he encountered the two swine-men I had seen dancing on the night of my arrival. Blood-stained they were about the mouth, and intensely excited. They came crashing through the ferns, and stopped with fierce faces when they saw him. They cracked his whip in some trepidation, and forthwith they rushed at him. Never before had a beast-man dared to do that. One he shot through the head. Emling flung himself upon the other, and the two rolled grappling. Emling got his brute under, and with his teeth in its throat, and Montgomery shot that too, as it struggled in Emling's grip. He had some difficulty in inducing Emling to come on with him. Thence they hurried back to me. On the way, Emling had suddenly rushed into a thicket, and driven out an undersized oscillate man, also blood-stained, and lame through a wound in the foot. This brute had run a little way, and then turned savagely at bay, and Montgomery, with a certain wantonness, I thought, had shot him. "'What does it all mean?' said I. He shook his head, and turned once more to the brandy. CHAPTER Eighteen: THE FINDING OF MOREAU When I saw Montgomery swallow a third dose of brandy, I took it upon myself to interfere. He was already more than half-fuddled, I told him that some serious thing must have happened to Moreau by this time, or he would have returned before this, and that it behooved us to ascertain what that catastrophe was. Montgomery raised some feeble objections, and at last agreed. We had some food, and then all three of us started. It is possibly due to the tension of my mind at the time, 
but even now that start into the hot stillness of the tropical afternoon is a singularly vivid impression. Emling went first, his shoulder hunched, his strange black head moving with quick starts, as he peered first on this side of the way and then on that. He was unarmed. His axe he had dropped when he encountered the swine-man. Teeth were his weapons when it came to fighting. Montgomery followed with stumbling footsteps, his hands in his pockets, his face downcast. He was in a state of muddled sullenness with me on account of the brandy. My left arm was in a sling. It was lucky it was my left, and I carried my revolver in my right. Soon we traced a narrow path through the wild luxuriance of the island, going northwestward, and presently Emling stopped and became rigid with watchfulness. Montgomery almost staggered into him and then stopped too. Then, listening intently, we heard coming through the trees the sound of voices and footsteps approaching us. "'He is dead,' said a deep, vibrating voice. "'He is not dead! He is not dead!' jabbered another. "'We saw! We saw!' said several voices. "'Hello!' suddenly shouted Montgomery. "'Hello there!' "'Confound you!' said I, and gripped my pistol. There was a silence, then a crashing among the interlacing vegetation, first here, then there, and then half a dozen faces appeared, strange faces, lit by a strange light. Emling made a growling noise in his throat. I recognized the ape-man. I had, indeed, already identified his voice, and two of the white-swathed brown-featured creatures I had seen in Montgomery's boat. With these were the two dappled brutes, and that grey, horribly crooked creature who said the law, with grey hair streaming down his cheeks, heavy grey eyebrows, and grey locks pouring off from a central parting upon its sloping forehead, a heavy, faceless thing, with strange red eyes, looked at us curiously from amidst the green. For a space no one spoke. Then Montgomery hiccuped, "'Who said he was dead?' The monkey-man looked guiltily at the hairy grey thing. "'He is dead,' said this monster. They saw. There was nothing threatening about this detachment, at any rate. They seemed awe-stricken and puzzled. "'Where is he?' said Montgomery. "'Beyond,' and the grey creature pointed. "'Is there a law now?' asked the monkey-man. "'Is it still to be this and that?' "'Is he dead indeed?' "'Is there a law?' repeated the man in white. "'Is there a law, thou other with the whip?' "'He is dead,' said the hairy grey thing, and they all stood watching us. "'Prendick,' said Montgomery, turning his dull eyes to me. "'He's dead, evidently.' I had been standing behind him during this colloquy. I began to see how things lay with them. I suddenly stopped in front of Montgomery, and lifted up my voice. "'Children of the law,' I said. "'He is not dead.' Emling turned his sharp eyes on me. "'He has changed his shape. He has changed his body,' I went on. "'For a time you will not see him. He is there,' I pointed upward, "'where he can watch you. You cannot see him, but he can see you.' Fear the law. I looked at them squarely. They flinched. He is great. He is good, said the ape-man, 
peering fearfully upward among the dense trees. "'And the other thing?' I demanded. "'The thing that bled and ran screaming and sobbing, that is dead too,' said the grey thing, still regarding me. "'That's well,' grunted Montgomery. "'The other, with the whip,' began the grey thing. "'Well,' said I, "'said he was dead.' but Montgomery was still sober enough to understand my motive in denying Moreau's death. "'He is not dead,' he said slowly. "'Not dead at all. No more dead than I am.' "'Some,' said I, "'have broken the law. They will die. Some have died. Show us now where his old body lies, the body he cast away, because he had no more need of it. It is this way.' man who walked in the sea said the grey thing and with these six creatures guiding us we went through the tumult of ferns and creepers and tree stems towards the northwest then came a yelling a crashing among the branches and a little pink homunculus rushed by us shrieking immediately after appeared a monster in headlong pursuit blood bedabbled who was amongst us almost before he could stop his career the grey thing leapt aside. Emling, with a snarl, flew at it, and was struck aside. Montgomery fired and missed, bowed his head, threw up his arm, and turned to run. I fired, and the thing still came on. Fired again, point-blank, into its ugly face. I saw its features vanish in a flash. Its face was driven in. Yet it passed me, gripped Montgomery, and holding him, fell headlong beside him, and pulled him sprawling upon itself in its death agony. I found myself alone with Emling, the dead brute, and the prostrate man. Montgomery raised himself slowly, and stared in a muddled way at the shattered beast-man beside him. It more than half sobered him. He scrambled to his feet. Then I saw the grey thing returning cautiously through the trees. "'See?' said I pointing to the dead brute, is the law not alive? This came of breaking the law. He peered at the body. He sends the fire that kills, said he in his deep voice, repeating part of the ritual. The others gathered round and stared for a space. At last we drew near the westward extremity of the island. We came upon the gnawed and mutilated body of the puma, its shoulder-bone smashed by a bullet and perhaps twenty yards farther found at last what we sought. Moreau lay face downward in a trampled space in a cane-break. One hand was almost severed at the wrist, and his silvery hair was dabbled in blood. His head had been battered in by the fetters of the puma. The broken canes beneath him were smeared with blood. His revolver we could not find. Montgomery turned him over. Resting at intervals, and with the help of the seven beast-people, for he was a heavy man, we carried Moreau back to the enclosure. The night was darkling. Twice we heard unseen creatures howling and shrieking past our little band, and once the little pink sloth creature appeared and stared at us and vanished again. But we were not attacked again. At the gates of the enclosure our company of beast-people left us, Emling going with the rest. We locked ourselves in, and then took Moreau's mangled body into the yard, and laid it upon a pile of brushwood. Then we went into the laboratory, 
and put an end to all we found living there. Chapter 19 Montgomery's Bank Holiday When this was accomplished, and we had washed and eaten, Montgomery and I went into my little room, and seriously discussed our position for the first time. It was then near midnight. He was almost sober, but greatly disturbed in his mind. He had been strangely under the influence of Moreau's personality. I do not think it had ever occurred to him that Moreau could die. This disaster was a sudden collapse of the habits that had become part of his nature in the ten or more monotonous years he had spent on the island. He talked vaguely, answered my questions crookedly, wandered into general questions. "'This silly ass of a world,' he said. "'What a muddle it all is! I haven't had any life. I wonder when it's going to begin.' Sixteen years being bullied by nurses and schoolmasters at their own sweet will, five in London grinding hard at medicine, bad food, shabby lodgings, shabby clothes, shabby vice, a blunder, I didn't know any better, and hustled off to this beastly island. Ten years here. What's it all for, Prendick? Are we bubbles blown by a baby? It was hard to deal with such ravings. "'The thing we have to think of now,' said I, "'is how to get away from this island. "'What's the good of getting away? "'I'm an outcast. "'Where am I to join on? "'It's all very well for you, Prendick. "'Poor old Morrow. "'We can't leave him here to have his bones picked. "'As it is. "'And besides, what will become of the decent part of the beast-folk?' "'Well,' said I, "'that will do to-morrow. "'I've been thinking we might make the brushwood into a pyre "'and burn his body, and those other things. "'Then what will happen with the beast-folk?' "'I don't know. "'I suppose those that were made of beasts of prey "'will make silly asses of themselves sooner or later. "'We can't massacre the lot, can we? "'I suppose that's what your humanity would suggest.' but they'll change. They are sure to change. He talked thus inconclusively, until at last I felt my temper going. Damnation! he exclaimed at some petulance of mine. Can't you see I'm in a worse hole than you are? And he got up and went for the brandy. Drink, he said, returning. You logic-chopping, chalky-faced saint of an atheist, drink. Not I said I, and sat grimly watching his face under the yellow paraffin flare, as he drank himself into garrulous misery. I have a memory of infinite tedium. He wandered into a maudlin defense of the beast people and of Emling. Emling, he said, was the only thing that had ever really cared for him. And suddenly an idea came to him. "'I'm damned,' said he, staggering to his feet and clutching the brandy-bottle. By some flash of intuition, I knew what it was he intended. "'You don't give drink to that beast,' I said, rising and facing him. "'Beast?' said he. "'You're the beast. He takes his liquor like a Christian. Come out of my way, Prendick.' "'For God's sake,' said I. "'Get out of the way,' he roared, and suddenly whipped out his revolver. 
"'Very well,' said I, and stood aside, half-minded to fall upon him as he put his hand upon the latch, but deterred by the thought of my useless arm. "'You've made a beast of yourself. To the beasts you may go.' He flung the doorway open, and stood half-facing me between the yellow lamplight and the pallid glare of the moon. His eye-sockets were blotches of black under his stubbly eyebrows. "'You're a solemn prig, Prendick, a silly ass. You're always fearing and fancying. We're on the edge of things. I'm bound to cut my throat tomorrow. I'm going to have a damned bank holiday tonight.' He turned and went out into the moonlight. "'Emling!' he cried. "'Emling, old friend!' Three dim creatures in the silvery light came along the edge of the wan beach, one a white-wrapped creature, the other two blotches of blackness following it. They halted, staring. Then I saw Emling's hunched shoulders as he came round the corner of the house. "'Drink!' cried Montgomery. "'Drink, you brutes! Drink and be men!' "'Damn me! I'm the cleverest! Moreau forgot this!' This is the last touch. Drink, I tell you. And waving the bottle in his hand, he started off at a kind of quick trot to the westward, Emling ranging himself between him and the three dim creatures who followed. I went to the doorway. They were already indistinct in the mist of the moonlight before Montgomery halted. I saw him administer a dose of the raw brandy to Emling, and saw the five figures melt into one vague patch. Sing! I heard Montgomery shouting. Sing! Shout! Sing all together! Confound old Prendick! That's right. Now again. Confound old Prendick! The black group broke up into five separate figures and wound slowly away from me along the band of shining beach. Each went howling at his own sweet will, yelping insults at me, or giving whatever other vent this new inspiration of brandy demanded. Presently I heard Montgomery's voice shouting, "'Right turn!' and they passed, with their shouts and howls, into the blackness of the landward trees. Slowly, very slowly, they receded into silence. The peaceful splendor of the night healed again. The moon was now past the meridian and traveling down the west. It was at its full, and very bright riding through the empty blue sky. The shadow of the wall lay, a yard wide and of inky blackness, at my feet. The eastward sea was a featureless grey, dark and mysterious, and between the sea and the shadow the grey sands, of volcanic glass and crystals, flashed and shone like a beach of diamonds. Behind me the paraffin lamp flared hot and ruddy. Then I shut the door, locked it, and where Moreau lay beside his latest victims, the staghounds and the llama, and some other wretched brutes, with his massive face calm even after his terrible death, and with the hard eyes open, staring at the dead white moon above. I sat down upon the edge of the sink, and with my eyes upon that ghastly pile of silvery light and ominous shadows, began to turn over my plans. In the morning I would gather some provisions in the dinghy, and, after setting fire to the pyre before me, push out into the desolation of the high sea once more. I felt that for Montgomery there was no help, that he was, in truth, half akin to these beast-folk, 
unfitted for human kindred. I do not know how long I sat there scheming. It must have been an hour or so. Then my planning was interrupted by the return of Montgomery to my neighborhood. I heard a yelling from many throats, a tumult of exultant cries passing down towards the beach, whooping and howling, and excited shrieks that seemed to come to a stop near the water's edge. The riot rose and fell. I heard heavy blows and the splintering smash of wood, but it did not trouble me then. A discordant chanting began. My thoughts went back to my means of escape. I got up, brought the lamp, and went into a shed to look at some kegs I had seen there. Then I became interested in the contents of some biscuit tins, and opened one. I saw something out of the tail of my eye, a red figure, and turned sharply. Behind me lay the yard, vividly black and white in the moonlight, and the pile of wood and faggots on which Moreau and his mutilated victims lay, one over another. They seemed to be gripping one another in one last revengeful grapple. His wounds gaped, black as night, and the blood that had dripped lay in black patches upon the sand. Then I saw, without understanding, the cause of my phantom, a ruddy glow that came and danced and went upon the wall opposite. I misinterpreted this, fancied it was the reflection of my flickering lamp, and turned again to the stores in the shed. I went on rummaging among them, as well as a one-armed man could, finding this convenient thing and that, and putting them aside for tomorrow's launch. My movements were slow, and the time passed quickly. Insensibly, the daylight crept upon me. The chanting died down, giving place to a clamor. Then it began again, and suddenly broke into a tumult. I heard cries of, More! More! A sound like quarreling, and a sudden wild shriek. The quality of the sounds changed so greatly that it arrested my attention. I went out into the yard and listened. Then, cutting like a knife across the confusion, came the crack of a revolver. I rushed at once through my room to the little doorway. As I did so, I heard some of the packing-cases behind me go sliding down and smash together with a clatter of glass on the floor of the shed. But I did not heed these. I flung the door open and looked out. Up the beach by the boathouse a bonfire was burning, raining up sparks into the indistinctness of the dawn. Around this struggled a mass of black figures. I heard Montgomery call my name. I began to run at once towards this fire, revolver in hand. I saw the pink tongue of Montgomery's pistol lick out once, close to the ground. He was down. I shouted with all my strength and fired into the air. I heard someone cry, The Master! The knotted black struggle broke into scattering units. The fire leaped and sank down. The crowd of beast people fled in sudden panic before me, up the beach. In my excitement I fired at their retreating backs as they disappeared among the bushes. Then I turned to the black heaps upon the ground. Montgomery lay on his back, with the hairy grey beast-man sprawling across his body. The brute was dead, but still gripping Montgomery's throat with its curving claws. Nearby lay Emling, on his face and quite still, his neck bitten open, and the upper part of the smashed brandy-bottle in his hand. Two other figures lay near the fire, the one motionless, the other groaning fitfully, 
every now and then raising its head slowly, then dropping it again. I caught hold of the grey man and pulled him off Montgomery's body. His claws drew down the torn coat reluctantly as I dragged him away. Montgomery was dark in the face and scarcely breathing. I splashed seawater on his face and pillowed his head on my rolled-up coat. Emling was dead. The wounded creature by the fire—it was a wolf-brute with a bearded grey face—lay, I found, with the forepart of its body upon the still glowing timber. The wretched thing was injured so dreadfully that in mercy I blew its brains out at once. The other brute was one of the bull-men, swathed in white. He, too, was dead. The rest of the beast-people had vanished from the beach. I went to Montgomery again, and knelt beside him, cursing my ignorance of medicine. The fire beside me had sunk down, and only charred beams of timber glowing at the central ends and mixed with a grey ash of brushwood remained. I wondered casually where Montgomery had got his wood. Then I saw that the dawn was upon us. The sky had grown brighter, the setting moon was becoming pale and opaque in the luminous blue of the day. The sky to the eastward was rimmed with red. Suddenly I heard a thud and a hissing behind me, and looking round sprang to my feet with a cry of horror. Against the warm dawn great tumultuous masses of black smoke were boiling up out of the enclosure, and through their stormy darkness shot flickering threads of blood-red flame. Then the thatched roof caught. I saw the curving charge of the flames across the sloping straw. A spurt of fire jetted from the window of my room. I knew at once what had happened. I remembered the crash I had heard. When I had rushed out to Montgomery's assistance, I had overturned the lamp. The hopelessness of saving any of the contents of the enclosure stared me in the face. My mind came back to my plan of flight, and turning swiftly I looked to see where the two boats lay upon the beach. They were gone. Two axes lay upon the sands beside me, chips and splinters were scattered broadcast, and the ashes of the bonfire were blackening and smoking under the dawn. Montgomery had burnt the boats to revenge himself upon me and prevent our return to mankind. A sudden convulsion of rage shook me. I was almost moved to batter his foolish head in, as he lay there helpless at my feet. Then suddenly his hand moved, so feebly, so pitifully, that my wrath vanished. He groaned and opened his eyes for a minute. I knelt down beside him and raised his head. He opened his eyes again, staring silently at the dawn, and then they met mine. The lids fell. "'Sorry,' he said presently, with an effort. He seemed trying to think. "'The last,' he murmured, "'the last of this silly universe. What a mess!' I listened. His head fell helplessly to one side. I thought some drink might revive him, but there was neither drink nor vessel in which to bring drink at hand. He seemed suddenly heavier. My heart went cold. I bent down to his face, put my hand through the rent in his blouse. He was dead. And even as he died, a line of white heat, the limb of the sun, rose eastward beyond the projection of the bay, splashing its radiance across the sky and turning the dark sea into a weldering tumult of dazzling light. 
It fell like a glory upon his death-shrunken face. I let his head fall gently upon the rough pillow I had made for him, and stood up. Before me was the glittering desolation of the sea, the awful solitude upon which I had already suffered so much. Behind me the island, hushed under the dawn, its beast-people silent and unseen. The enclosure, with all its provisions and ammunition, burnt noisily, with sudden gusts of flame, a fitful crackling, and now and then a crash. The heavy smoke drove up the beach away from me, rolling low over the distant treetops towards the huts in the ravine. Beside me were the charred vestiges of the boats, and these five dead bodies. Then out of the bushes came three beast-people, with hunched shoulders, protruding heads, misshapen hands awkwardly held, and inquisitive, unfriendly eyes, and advanced towards me with hesitating gestures. CHAPTER Twenty, ALONE WITH THE BEAST-FOLK I faced these people, facing my fate in them, single-handed now, literally single-handed, for I had a broken arm. In my pocket was a revolver with two empty chambers. Among the chips scattered about the beach lay the two axes that had been used to chop up the boats. The tide was creeping in behind me. There was nothing for it but courage. I looked squarely into the faces of the advancing monsters. They avoided my eyes, and their quivering nostrils investigated the bodies that lay beyond me on the beach. I took half a dozen steps, picked up the blood-stained whip that lay beneath the body of the wolf-man, and cracked it. They stopped and stared at me. "'Salute!' said I. "'Bow down!' They hesitated. One bent his knees. I repeated my command, with my heart in my mouth, and advanced upon them. One knelt, then the other two. I turned and walked towards the dead bodies, keeping my face towards the three kneeling beastmen, very much as an actor passing up the stage faces the audience. "'They broke the law,' said I, putting my feet on the sayer of the law. "'They have been slain, even the sayer of the law, even the other with the whip.' Great is the law. Come and see. None escape, said one of them, advancing and peering. None escape, said I. Therefore hear and do as I command. They stood up, looking questioningly at one another. Stand there, said I. I picked up the hatchets and swung them by their heads from the sling of my arm, turned Montgomery over, picked up his revolver, still loaded in two chambers, and bending down to rummage, found half a dozen cartridges in his pocket. "'Take him,' said I, standing up again, and pointing with the whip. "'Take him, and carry him out, and cast him into the sea.' They came forward, evidently still afraid of Montgomery, but still more afraid of my cracking red whiplash, and after some fumbling and hesitation, some whip-cracking and shouting, they lifted him gingerly, carried him down to the beach, and went splashing into the dazzling welter of the sea. "'On,' said I, "'on! Carry him far!' They went in up to their armpits, and stood regarding me. "'Let go,' said I. And the body of Montgomery vanished with a splash. Something seemed to tighten across my chest. "'Good!' 
said I, with a break in my voice, and they came back, hurrying and fearful, to the margin of the water, leaving long wakes of black in the silver. At the water's edge they stopped, turning and glaring into the sea, as though they presently expected Montgomery to arise therefrom and exact vengeance. "'Now these,' said I, pointing to the other bodies. They took care not to approach the place where they had thrown Montgomery into the water, but instead carried the four dead beast-people slantingly along the beach for perhaps a hundred yards before they waded out and cast them away. As I watched them disposing of the mangled remains of Emling, I heard a light footfall behind me, and turning quickly saw the big hyena swine perhaps a dozen yards away. His head was bent down, his bright eyes were fixed upon me, his stumpy hands clenched and held close by his side. He stopped in this crouching attitude when I turned, his eyes a little averted. For a moment we stood eye to eye. I dropped the whip, snatched at the pistol in my pocket, for I meant to kill this brute, the most formidable of any left now upon the island, at the first excuse. It may seem treacherous, but so I was resolved. I was far more afraid of him than of any other two of the beast-folk. His continued life was, I knew, a threat against mine. I was perhaps a dozen seconds collecting myself. Then cried I, Salute! Bow down! His teeth flashed upon me in a snarl. Who are you that I should? Perhaps a little too spasmodically I drew my revolver, aimed quickly, and fired. I heard him yelp, saw him run sideways and turn, knew I had missed, and click back the cock with my thumb for the next shot. But he was already running headlong, jumping from side to side, and I dared not risk another miss. Every now and then he looked back at me over his shoulder. He went slanting along the beach, and vanished beneath the driving masses of dense smoke that were still pouring out from the burning enclosure. For some time I stood staring after him. I turned to my three obedient beast-folk again, and signalled them to drop the body they still carried. Then I went back to the place by the fire where the bodies had fallen, and kicked the sand until all the brown bloodstains were absorbed and hidden. I dismissed my three serfs with a wave of the hand, and went up the beach into the thickets. I carried my pistol in my hand, my whip thrust with the hatchets in the sling of my arm. I was anxious to be alone, to think out the position in which I was now placed. A dreadful thing that I was only beginning to realize was that over all this island there was now no safe place where I could be alone and secure to rest or sleep. I had recovered strength amazingly since my landing, but I was still inclined to be nervous and to break down under any great stress. I felt that I ought to cross the island and establish myself with the beast people, and make myself secure in their confidence, but my heart failed me. I went back to the beach, and turning eastward, past the burning enclosure, made for a point where a shallow spit of coral sand ran out towards the reef. Here I could sit down and think, my back to the sea, and my face against any surprise. And there I sat, chin on knees, the sun beating down upon my head, and unspeakable dread in my mind, plotting how I could live on against the hour of my rescue, if ever rescue came. I tried to review the whole situation as calmly as I could, but it was difficult to clear the thing of emotion. 
I began turning over in my mind the reason for Montgomery's despair. They will change, he said. They are sure to change. And Moreau, what was it that Moreau had said? The stubborn beast-flesh grows day by day back again. Then I came round to the hyena swine. I felt sure that if I did not kill that brute, he would kill me. The sayer of the law was dead. Worse luck. They knew now that we of the whips could be killed, even as they themselves were killed. Were they peering at me already out of the green masses of ferns and palms over yonder, watching until I came within their spring? Were they plotting against me? What was the hyena swine telling them? My imagination was running away with me into a morass of unsubstantial fears. My thoughts were disturbed by a crying of seabirds hurrying towards some black object that had been stranded by the waves on the beach near the enclosure. I knew what that object was, but I had not the heart to go back and dry them off. I began walking along the beach in the opposite direction, designing to come round the eastern corner of the island, and so approach the ravine of the huts, without traversing the possible ambuscades of the thickets. Perhaps half a mile along the beach I became aware of one of my three beast-folk advancing out of the landward bushes towards me. I was now so nervous with my imaginings that I immediately drew my revolver. Even the propitiatory gestures of the creature failed to disarm me. He hesitated as I approached. "'Go away!' cried I. There was something very suggestive of a dog in the cringing attitude of the creature. It retreated a little way, very like a dog being sent home, and stopped, looking at me imploringly with canine brown eyes. "'Go away!' said I. "'Do not come near me.' "'May I not come near you?' it said. "'No. Go away!' I insisted, and snapped my whip. Then, putting my whip in my teeth, I stooped for a stone, and with that threat drove the creature away. So, in solitude, I came round by the ravine of the beast-people, and hiding among the weeds and reeds that separated this crevice from the sea, I watched such of them as appeared, trying to judge from their gestures and appearance how the death of Moreau and Montgomery and the destruction of the House of Pain had affected them. I know now the folly of my cowardice. Had I kept my courage up to the level of the dawn, had I not allowed it to ebb away in solitary thought, I might have grasped the vacant sceptre of Moreau, and ruled over the beast-people. As it was, I lost the opportunity, and sank to the position of a mere leader among my fellows. Towards noon certain of them came and squatted, basking in the hot sand. The imperious voices of hunger and thirst prevailed over my dread. I came out of the bushes, and, revolver in hand, walked down towards these seated figures. One, a wolf-woman, turned her head and stared at me, and then the others. None attempted to rise and salute me. I felt too faint and weary to insist, and I let the moment pass. "'I want food,' said I, almost apologetically, and drawing near. "'There is food in the huts,' said an oxbore man drowsily, and looking away from me. I passed them, and went down into the shadow and odours of the almost deserted ravine. In an empty hut I feasted on some specked and half-decayed fruit, and then, after I had propped some branches and sticks about the opening, 
and placed myself with my face towards it and my hand upon my revolver, the exhaustion of the last thirty hours claimed its own, and I fell into a light slumber, hoping that the flimsy barricades I had erected would cause sufficient noise in its removal to save me from surprise. End of Part 7